Our Old Testament reading will be from selected passages from Genesis chapters 41 and 50. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he, became, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said that, you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and as wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set over you all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus, oh, yeah. Thus he sent over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up your hand or foot in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zepheth, you all get it. <laughs> and he gave him in marriage Asmeth, the daughter of Potipharah the priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt, and Joseph was 30 years old when he entered in the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went out through the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years of earth, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for, I am, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. What you all don't know is uh, that Mike and I as pastors are always glad that you have to read those names and not us. So uh, I do pray for you while you're up here trying to do it, but we're just secretly glad we don't have to do it. So uh, thank you for your heroic efforts. Let's pray. God, we are thankful to you for your word that has abided for thousands of years and has done things in the lives of people, including us in this room, that we could have never done on our own. You've used your word to heal, to bring spiritual life, to humble, to embolden. 
Would you do all those things for us, Lord, so that everyone would know that there is a God in Washington, D.C.? In Christ's name, amen. As the American culture, as American society, finds itself uh, more and more distant and at odds with the Christian faith, there is an, a need for what we might call the diplomacy of faith, or as we're calling this series, ambassadors, faithful ambassadors of God. Those that can represent God with boldness, yet respect. They can represent God with clarity, yet with empathy. And we find uh, some wonderful examples in the Bible of folks that do this with God's help. And so we're spending the next couple months studying them. Three in particular, Joseph... Esther and Daniel, three people that found themselves um, at the highest levels of government, not their own, as a witness or ambassador for God. And as you look at their stories, there's two things that they have in common. One is their path to the top was one of suffering and trouble. The second one was that in a growing way, albeit dimly, they could apprehend and grasp the plan of God. They could see the plan of God working. Now, when Joseph was a teenager at 17, or an older teenager, probably in that culture, an adult, Joseph had a much different vision for the plan of God in his life. He was daddy's favorite. He had been given a royal robe, which indicated that he would rule over the older brothers in his family, which was not the way it usually went, right? The eldest was the one that would be given those privileges and rights. On top of that, he was getting, given dreams from God. God was speaking to him, literally speaking to him through dreams. And so you can imagine Joseph envisioned a bright future for himself. I mean, it doesn't take a lot for us to envision a bright future for ourselves. If I had that going for me, I'd be insufferable. You wouldn't want to be around me. And his brothers didn't want to be around him. And at the age of 17, Joseph's life takes a swift turn in a different direction. You might remember from last week, his brothers get so filled with hatred and resentment that they sell him into slavery. He becomes a bonded slave. He's sold into the home of one of the captains of Pharaoh of Egypt. While he's in that home, he's falsely charged by the captain's wife of sexual assault. He's convicted and he's imprisoned. He's thrown into the dungeons of Pharaoh to be forgotten forever, to rot away forever. And he spends 13 years, 13 years on that journey, all of his 20s. And we get a sense of that even from our text where Pharaoh calls him up. It says that Joseph was in a pit, unshaven and unclean. 
This is where his life had sunk. Yet, not long after that, he makes one of the most profound statements about God's plan in our lives. Recorded in the entire Bible, he says this. As for you, this is to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. And in that, Joseph acknowledges both the sovereign plan of God and the saving plan of God. Now, we tend to be folks that like the plan. We like to know the plan. Uh, We like our to-do list. We like to schedule. We like to plan goals. Even if you're someone that's laid back, that's your plan. Your plan is don't disturb my plan with your plans. This is just part of how God has made us, people that desire a plan. Though we often make plans better than we grasp God's plans. The Proverbs say that a, a heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And as we come to ourselves see the plan of God at work in our lives, individually and as a community, and in our city, it makes us not only more joyful, it makes us effective and faithful ambassadors for God. And so I'd like us to take the time we have to look at those two things, the sovereign plan of God and the saving plan of God. A few weeks ago, I mentioned um, a great hymn writer named William Cooper. His name is spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, so many times people pronounce it Cowper, but it's William Cooper. Uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, was his pastor for a time. Uh, Newton was such a wonderful hymnist and poet. Uh, ben, ben Franklin was a fan of his poems and uh, read them and benefited from them. Yet when you look at Cooper's life, as one theologian said, it could be described as one long accumulation of pain. Uh, When he's a child, his mother dies. Uh, His relationship with his father uh, is something that is uh, very uh, perplexing and very broken. When he was, uh, I think, 10 or 11, his father gave him an essay on why it was legitimate to commit suicide. Uh, And this is to a son who was already struggling with depression, so you can see that dad probably had his own problems with depression and issues. He sent off to boarding school, where he later records that he was um, physically and likely sexually abused for years. He then falls in love with a cousin of his, and um, only to have the father of the woman say, no, you won't be married. And both of them uh, live their whole lives without being married. So he carried a broken heart. And then on top of that, he dealt with uh, mental illness. A couple times in his life, he tried to take his own life, but God preserved him till the end, and he died. I tell you all that because I'd like you to know the author behind these words. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deepen unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. 
but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Amazing words from that man. And I think those were words that Joseph well could resonate with. Maybe you can resonate with them. Things that we often regard as coincidences, or Murphy's Law, right? Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Many times, it's the all-powerful, guiding, loving hand of God. But we don't see it for that. And we see this in Joseph's life, where everything happens at the right time. His father sends him to go find his brothers that are grazing animals in a region, um... He sends them there, but they aren't there. They're actually in a remote area. Joseph um, finds that out by happening upon a stranger who in that day and culture was willing to be friendly and talk and who overheard the brothers say that they would move to a different part. Now, it's likely if the father knew it was going to be that far away and remote, he wouldn't have sent Joseph. If he wouldn't have met the stranger, he wouldn't have found the brothers. If he wouldn't have found the brothers in the remote place, the brothers likely wouldn't have plotted what they did because it would have been too populated in the area they were. If Joseph would have been a little bit later, the slave traders wouldn't have come by. When Joseph is taken in as a slave, he's taken as a house slave instead of a field slave. That's because of his ethnicity, of Asian descent. Asian slaves were regarded higher for their skill. If he wouldn't have been a house slave, Potiphar's wife wouldn't have noticed him, become attracted to him, and tried to make her play on him. If Joseph hadn't resisted, she hadn't have then falsely charged him. He wouldn't have ended up in prison next to the cupbearer who Pharaoh got mad at and sent into prison. The cupbearer has a dream. Joseph interprets the dream. Word gets the cupbearer gets released from prison. Word gets to Pharaoh. Joseph gets into Pharaoh's court. A region of people are saved from starvation. Joseph's family is saved from starvation. And the line of the Messiah can continue. Everything happened at the right time. It's true that even evil and injustice, God co-ops for his own purposes. You know, Abraham Lincoln in his second inaugural address, and some of you have read that, exhibits such a profound understanding of the way that God's purposes and providence work amidst evil and injustice. Uh, if you've ever had a chance to read that, it's, it's remarkable And in it, one of the lines he says in it are, the prayers of both sides, the North and the South, could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. And this is the very thing that's demonstrated most chiefly in the life of Jesus Christ. Here you have Jesus Christ going through a series of great injustices, uh, rejected, betrayed, falsely imprisoned, beaten, crucified, put to death. But listen to how the gospel, the apostles preached about that event. They understood it with the mind of God. They said this, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, 
And as you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The apostles are saying, yes, Jesus was a victim of oppression and injustice, but we want you to know that whatever God ordained was right. God permitted the injustice, but he hijacked it for its own purposes. And he does that in the life of everybody that becomes his follower. That's not unique to just Jesus. Everybody that is in Christ, that becomes a follower of the Son of God, that same promise holds true. Now, I know the cynic in us will say, I, I hear these examples, Glenn, but isn't it true? Hindsight is twenty twenty. It's always easier to look back, right, and say, well, I see how these things worked out. It's living in the middle chapters that's difficult. We would love to hear the final chapter, but the truth is we're living in chapter 3, 4, and 5, and it's very confusing, very vexing. Some of us become very cynical, very disillusioned. I think Joseph struggled with that too. And there are two things that help us in those middle chapters. One we saw last week in Joseph's life, and that is noticing the day-to-day faithfulness of God. The day-to-day faithfulness in the little things of our lives where God shows up. That carries you through in the middle chapters. Very important. But a second thing is, we have it better than Joseph because, my friends, we know the end of the story. We have the end of the story. Those of us that are living on the other side of Christ's coming and living as the canon of Scripture has been preserved and put together and inspired by God, by the witnesses that were eyewitnesses, we can read and go, oh, I see that God was, in the Hebrew Scriptures, that God was saving Israel time and time again and persevering its leaders. Why? Because the Messiah would come through that line. We can see that Jesus is suffering and his crucifixion and his death was for the purpose of redemption and being raised from the dead. We can see that Jesus' authoritative claim that he would establish a global church and it would grow. He said that over 2,000 years ago and it has occurred. It's continuing to grow and grow all over the earth. We can understand that for the reason he has done this is because he will return and one day unite all things under heaven and in earth where all the tears go away, all the sadness goes away, all the broken cities go away. We have the end of the story. And so it should help us live in a different way, a different light. But I think it also, as we recognize the sovereign plan of God, does a few things. One, it helps us release control over our own stories. That's a hard thing for us. Now, Joseph could never have imagined how God would exalt him when he was in that pit. The Pharaoh's signet ring given to him, the second chariot, people bowing down before him, the grand steward of Israel. And we know that this was, a, this was a, a thing that had happened before, where a Semite had risen to that level of government, where you would have a non-Egyptian as the grand steward of Israel. Joseph follows in a few that were rewarded with that line. But in the lives of Joseph and Esther and Daniel, one thing we have to bear in mind is none of them designed to get where they were going. None of them were self-promoted to that. In fact, the way they got there was basically being abducted. So beware of what you hope for in promotion. You know, you, you never know how you'll get there. 
But it was God's hand that brought them through the hand of suffering. We oftentimes want to control our story, don't we? We obsess over this idea that if I could just get myself in the right place with the right people at the right time, then it would work out. When we trust in the sovereign plan of God, it really helps us to to lay back on that, to release it. Second of all, we stop wanting other people's stories. Because that's often the case. Our confession of sin got at that. We look at someone and say, "I, I want their marriage. I want their dating relationship. I want the opportunities that they had. I want the family they grew up in. I I want the skills they have. I want the job they have. I want Jesse's girl. That was a risk because, you know, I realized I could go there and no one would say, what is he talking about? But thank you. Thank you. Enough of you understood that. Who would have wanted Joseph's story in the middle? Nobody. Nobody would want one of Joseph's stories in chapter 3, 4, and 5. We don't need to covet other people's stories. And you should know this. If you attach yourself to Jesus Christ, God is determined to write a mini redemption story in your life. He is determined. It doesn't have to do with you. He's bound you to his great purposes and glory. We don't have to want each other's stories. He's going to write something beautiful in you that could only be written in you. Yes, it takes faith. It may take years. It may take 13 years. It may take 20 years. But thirdly, trusting in the sovereign plan of God, we become a calming and wise force in the public square. Where things are driven by anxiety and greed and fear, as Joseph came into that anxious system, he could be a calm and wise force So much so that they would say, there is none so discerning and wise as Joseph. The sovereign plan of God helps us to be faithful ambassadors in our setting. But the second point, the saving plan of God. Joseph tells his brothers it's not only the sovereign plan of God, but it's a saving plan. Literally, it saves people, their lives, physically. But it also saves people spiritually as we follow it out. Learning to abandon our salvation schemes is so, so hard for all of us. You see, when things went wrong and sin entered the world and sin entered humankind, we all became strategists to save ourselves. And so God's plan A becomes our plan B. And our plan to save ourselves is the thing that we operate from. And by save, I mean whatever you're using to secure yourself, gain acceptance, get yourself set up. Maybe it's, I will control my world. I will control my career. Maybe it is, I will get people to like me. That's how I'll save myself. Maybe it's, I'll get a certain standard of living. Maybe it's, I will get uh, the retirement that I've been socking away for years, whatever it be. Or it might be that we have to give up relishing the role we like in saving other people. You know, to get that phone call and people want to hear your advice. Where you're able to enter into your family situation and fix the problem. You know, I think Joseph had both of those probably going on. I mean, I I don't think it's um, a stretch. We saw it earlier on, the evident pride he had that he was going to rule the family. How eager he was to tell everybody about the revelations God had given him. Joseph not only was trusting in his stuff for his own salvation, but 
that he would be the deliverer of the family. And yet, those 13 years changed that. You see it in verse 16. When Pharaoh wants to give Joseph the glory, and he says about the dream, interpreting the dream, and he says, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. This is consistent with all the faithful ambassadors in Scripture. They are constantly pushing off the glory and pointing people as ambassadors to God, not themselves. You see it with David. You see it with the Apostle Paul, the apostles, if they would do miracles. You see it especially with angels. If you read the Gospels, people will fall down before them all the time and they'll say, Get up! I'm not God. And so Pharaoh begins to get this message because at one point he says, the spirit of God that's in Joseph. He understands that God, you know, dimly, is the source of this salvation. God is the one with the salvation plan, and what a glorious plan it is. I'd urge you this week to read Ephesians chapter 1, where it talks about the divine trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, who worked their great plan of salvation on behalf of their people. They predestined them for adoption, those that they love in adoption. They are recipients of the redemption, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that they might be holy and blameless in the presence of God. They receive the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, as the deposit that lives inside them. They obtain an inheritance, and again, God will unite all things under heaven and earth for his people. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is able to save completely those that draw near. The Christian gospel is the only one where you find complete salvation. That's not a boastful statement I'm making. It's a factual statement I'm making. And all other systems out there, including the secular one, basically, the best you might get is a God that meets you halfway. Pull yourself by your bootstraps. God will bless the one that works hard and gets it right and who's sincere and does good. That's not the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel is the one that tells you that God will save completely. Mike mentioned earlier that passage in Romans where Paul could even say that you're not only been, you know, uh, for, for knowledge, predestined according to the purpose of God, you have been justified, that is made right to God, past tense, and you have even been glorified. It's such a done deal. Paul could look ahead and say the people of God have already been perfected. He's looking ahead to heaven. A complete salvation. And when we grasp this, two things to close. We can become ourselves ambassadors of mercy. You can't truly save people if you're using them to save yourself. You can't really do good works. I mean, you could be working the best nonprofit in D.C., but if you're basically doing it for your own name, or you're doing it because you believe you're going to be the one that fixes the world, you're really doing it to save yourself, not to save other people. It's only grace that can free you up to be a true ambassador of mercy. Proverbs 13 says, A faithful envoy or ambassador brings healing. They bring shalom. And you see this with Joseph. He gets a dream about an unprecedented famine that will hit that area, and he uses his skills to outline a public policy whereby they will stockpile food, God will bless the harvest, and then they can distribute food. It not only saves the Egyptians, it saves those in that region of the world. It also saves Joseph's family again from whom the Messiah would come. There you see the big-heartedness of God. He has compassion on all he has made. 
Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God meant for the saving of many, many people. You know, our creed here is in and for the city. The idea that we want to contribute to the common good. What's interesting about Joseph, he does not use his position for a power play. He does not use that place that God has put him into, a place of influence to try to manipulate or get himself in a position. He uses it for the common good of those around him. It's going to be more important than ever that Christians not shrink back from the public square, but they move into it with greater acts of sacrifice and mercy and common good. But second of all, not only ambassadors of mercy, ambassadors of reconciliation. God works salvation in this very broken, divided family. And these brothers, who we must imagine believe that they had permanently ruined their standing with God. I mean, I don't know what you've done in this room that makes you feel like you're unsavable. Maybe you've done it as bad as Joseph Brothers, but I doubt it. I don't know if you've turned in one of your siblings into bonded slavery and lied to your father and said they were killed by an animal and left them to rot. Can you imagine what it was like when they would do family worship? I bet everybody's eyes were on the ground. That they couldn't pray to God at night because their conscience would just convict them. And yet, by God's great, Joseph says this, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph becomes an agent of mercy and grace, consoling his brothers with kindness and the love of God. And he also understands that the story of salvation is bigger than just his story. That's hard for those of us that especially have grown up in America because we tend to be individualistic. But he's able to grasp that God's saving work in me is broader than me. And I hope you know that's true of you. God wants to do so much more than save you. He wants to use you in the lives of countless people to work salvation, either physical or spiritual salvation, and salvation in this city, in Washington, D.C. It's a big plan of salvation. You see, Joseph was just a fulfillment of what God had said to Abraham, that he would bring kings through Abraham's line. And Joseph's family, his brothers, coming to reconcile and repent was just a picture because they represented the 12 tribes of Israel, just a picture of God's people who will be perfected and sanctified and made to be like the Son of God. And Joseph's rule in Egypt was just a foreshadow of the rule of the Son of God who would rule the entire earth. The saving plan of God is so broad, and we're included in it. Faithful and ambassadors begin to understand the sovereign plan of God, the saving plan of God. May God give us eyes to see. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord, we give you praise and thanks. We marvel at the way you are able to bring about your good work. We thank you for the story of Joseph and your scripture so that we could learn from it. More so, we thank you for the greater Joseph, Jesus Christ, who suffered and rose and saved those greater than the sand and the seashore. In Christ's name.